G'day, I'm Adam Spencer and this is City Talks, brought to you by the City of Sydney. City Talks is about starting a conversation, a healthy community discussion about important and innovative global, national and local city issues. Over the past few years, I've had the pleasure of emceeing City Talk events, which have featured leading industry experts, innovators and creative thinkers from around the globe. We're talking about experts who really challenge our way of thinking and who present fresh, innovative ideas and perspectives on the very same issues that we face in our own city of Sydney. In this podcast series, we feature some curated highlights from the City Talks public speaker series, recorded live at Sydney Town Hall. Many experts believe that climate change is the most important issue of our time. Leading scientists agree that we've reached a critical decade and what we do or don't do in the next few years is likely not only to influence the world our children and grandchildren will inherit, but could even determine the future of our species. Well, this episode of City Talks features one of the world's best-known environmental campaigners and award-winning scientists, Dr David Suzuki. A brilliant science communicator, he is a long-time campaigner for action on climate change. David Suzuki shares his ideas about where government should be heading globally and in our region to combat the effects of climate change. Over to you. Thank you. I'm honoured to be here and uh, to be a part of this incredible lecture series that you have and to have the privilege of sharing a few of my ideas with you. You know, we used to say, think globally, act locally. And for many people that I've met, they say, when I think about the global situation, it's so huge and I'm so insignificant. What the heck can I do to make a difference? I think one feels disempowered by thinking about the global uh, context or the, the global situation. And I think Thomas Berry was right. We really have to think locally and act locally to have any hope of being effective globally. You see... We are at an absolutely unprecedented and critical moment in all of human history. What we do or do not do in the next few years could very well determine the fate of our species. Now, that's a very melodramatic way to express it, and you can go, well, what the heck? Well, you don't have to to listen to me or Greenpeace or anyone else. How about Sir Martin Rees, the royal astronomer uh, in England who was asked on BBC, what are the chances that human beings will be around by the end of this century? And his answer was 50-50. Or James Lovelock, who uh, invented the idea of Gaia, the web of living things on the planet, who's written a book saying that by the end of the century, over 90% of all humanity will be gone. And of course, your eminent eco-philosopher, Clive Hamilton, has written a book called Requiem for a Species, and guess what species the Requiem is for? It's for us. Many of my colleagues now believe that we've passed too many tipping points to ever have the ecosystems of the planet recover. They say it's too late. And what I say to them is thank you very much for urging us on, for describing how serious the situation is. But we always have to have hope. Hope that is far more than just a Pollyanna-ish, oh yeah, yeah, I hope, I hope. But hope based on the fact that we don't know enough to say that it's too late. And if we can pull back and pull the pressure off nature, I believe nature will be far more forgiving than we deserve. But the important thing is that we have to pull back very quickly and give her a chance. 
1962, when Rachel Carson published Silent Spring, all about the unexpected effects of pesticides, especially DDT, it started a global environmental movement. When her book came out, there wasn't a single department of the environment in any government on the planet. But as a result of her book, millions of people were swept up then in what we now recognize as the environmental movement. Departments of the environment were established at federal, provincial, and even municipal levels. We got laws, laws protecting air and water and soil, endangered species, and millions and millions of hectares were set aside as parks. It was an enormous success of the young environmental movement. And many, and we celebrated many victories. I personally remember some of the ones that I was involved in, uh, the fight against the proposals to drill for oil in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, an area adjacent to Yukon in Canada where the porcupine caribou herd would uh, have their calves, the calving grounds. And we fought back a number of times to prevent the uh, oil lobby from getting permission to drill in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. We stopped dams. We stopped one in British Columbia at Sightsee on the Peace River. I became very involved in the fight against a dam called Cararao near Altamira on the Xingu River in Brazil. And the proposal to build, bring super tankers down the uh, coast of British Columbia from Alaska going to Seattle was stopped, as well as proposals to drill offshore uh, off uh, my province. We celebrated these as great successes at the time. But now, 30, 35 years later, guess what? Each one of these issues is back and we're fighting them all over again. What we thought were great environmental victories, in fact, turned out to be pyrrhic. They weren't real victories because we didn't change people's understanding or the way that they looked at the world around us. When people ask me today, what is the biggest environmental issue we face today? Is it global warming? Or is it the acidification of the oceans? Is it deforestation or the spread of toxic pollutants or species extinction? And I say, yeah, those are all important. I don't know if anyone can say which one will ultimately tip us over the edge. They're all important. But underlying all of these issues is the real cause of our destructive activities. And that is a two-kilogram organ buried deep in our skulls. It's the beliefs and the values that we have in our minds that drive us in the path that we're on. And we in the environmental movement have fundamentally failed to change the beliefs and values that, have been, uh, that we fought against in those uh, early battles that we thought we had succeeded. You see... Environmentalism is not a discipline or a specialty. It's a way of seeing the world. It's not like medicine or teaching or politics or plumbing. It's simply the way we perceive our place on the planet, that we are deeply embedded in the biosphere and that we are dependent on the web of all living things to keep us alive and healthy. We learn to see the world through perceptual lenses that are laid down as we grow up. And those lenses are shaped by gender, by socioeconomic class, by experience, by religion, ethnicity. All of these things shape the way we see the world. Now, you might think, come on, Suzuki, how can that be? But just try asking a man and ask a woman separately and ask them about sex 
or love or family, and you'd swear they came from different planets. Ask uh, an Israeli or a Palestinian about Gaza or Jerusalem, and you'll get very different answers. Ask a, a, a stock investor on Wall Street and a street person on Wall Street about the economy or welfare or money. The way we see the world is shaped by those beliefs and values that we cling to. And right now, I believe that we've been monocultured around the world with this notion of human dominance of the planet that we somehow have escaped our biological roots and we no longer are bound by the same uh, demands that people saw for most of human existence. How did we lose that sense of embeddedness in the world around us? I've been amazed at how scientists can now use DNA, the genetic material, and track the movement of human beings over time across the surface of the planet. And all of the trails lead back to Africa 150,000 years ago. We are all Africans in uh, our birthplace. And for 95% of our existence after our birth in Africa, we were nomadic hunter-gatherers. And when you have to carry everything you own on your back as you follow game and plants through the seasons, you know very well that you are dependent, utterly dependent on nature for your survival and your well-being. In the last 10,000 years after the agricultural revolution, for most of the 10,000 years, we were a farming species. In 1900, when there were 1.6 billion people in the world, there were only 14 cities with more than a million people. I am absolutely sure you didn't have a city in Australia with a million people in 1900. The biggest city in the world in 1900 was six and a half million in London. Tokyo was the seventh largest city, one and a half million people. The vast majority of people in Canada and Australia and around the world lived in rural village communities because we were primarily concerned with agriculture. We were farmers. And farmers understand very clearly that weather and climate are utterly important for how well we do through the years. Farmers in Canada know that the amount of snow in the winter is directly related to how much moisture you're going to have in the soil in the summer. Farmers know that we need insects to pollinate flowering plants, that certain species of plants will take nitrogen from the air and fix it as fertilizer in the soil. Farmers understand that we are a part of nature and dependent on it. But in the last hundred years, we've suddenly changed radically in our relationship with the planet and in the way that we see that relationship. In the last hundred years, our population has exploded. We think if we were born as a species in 150,000 years ago, it took almost all of the rest of history to reach a billion people early in the 1800s, about 1803. I was born in 1936 when there were just over two billion people. Can you imagine in my lifetime, the world has more than tripled. And you heard in the film, when Severn gave the speech in 1992, there were only five billion people on the planet. So we've suddenly exploded in terms of our numbers. There were never a billion of any other mammalian species ever in the history of life on this planet. And all seven billion of us 
have to be fed, clothed, and sheltered. We have to breathe the air and drink the water. It takes an enormous amount of air, water, and land to supply us just to, for, with what we need to live. So we have a big ecological footprint. But of course, we're not like rats or rabbits or mice. We have an enormous amount of technology used on our behalf. And that technology amplifies. When you look at our clothing and the food and our, our cars and computers and all of the things that we take for granted in our lives that are delivered to us and through technology, we have amplified our ecological footprint beyond anything that we could imagine just a few hundred years ago. And of course, it doesn't end there. Ever since World War II, we've been afflicted with an incredible appetite for stuff. We love to shop. 95% of American teenage girls call shopping their number one recreation. So it gives you exercise at the same time you're going out and having a good time shopping. And all that we buy, all that we consume and throw back into the earth comes from Mother Earth originally. And we ask her to absorb what we throw out. And that, again, amplifies our ecological footprint. And we have a global economy now that exploits the entire planet for raw materials and the entire planet to spread our toxic uh, uh, wastes. We have become so powerful collectively that we are altering the physical, chemical, and biological properties of the planet on a geological scale. That's why scientists today refer to this, the last 200 years, as the Anthropocene Epoch, the age when humans have become a geological force. But in the process of having such a big impact, we are undermining the very things that keep us alive and healthy, the life support system. And at this very moment, when we are having such an impact on the biosphere, I believe we have been blinded from seeing it by the way that we live. Remember in 1900, there were only 14 cities with more than a million people. The vast majority of people were rural agrarian people. In only 100 years, by the year 2000, when there were now 6 billion human beings on earth, there were more than 400 cities with more than a million people. The 10 largest cities in the year 2000 all had more than 11 million people. Tokyo was the largest city in the world, 26 million people. Can you imagine going from a million and a half to 26 million in 100 years? Now, they, had a, they were helped by having Tokyo bombed to hell, but they still had to build up a city for 26 million people in less than 100 years. And as big city dwellers in countries like Canada and Australia, where over 80% of us now are urban dwellers, our priority then becomes our jobs. We need a job to earn the money to buy the things that we want. And so the economy comes to assume this uh, increasing importance in our lives. In a city, more and more, we don't even bother to go outside. In Canada today, the average child spends eight minutes a day outside and more than six hours a day in front of a television, computer, or a cell phone uh, screen. We don't go outside and see the world that supports us. In a city, we think that 
as long as there are parks where we can go and play and camp, who needs nature? We're so smart, we create our own habitat. And so we then say, as my prime minister does today, we can't afford to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. It'll destroy the economy. We say we have to clear cut forests. We have to drag heavy weights across the bottom of the ocean. We have to dump raw sewage into the oceans. We have to spread chemicals into the air, water, and land because it's the only way we can be globally competitive. And so the economy then becomes elevated above the very biosphere that supports us. Let's have a reality check at this moment in time. We live in a world that is defined by the laws of nature. And we have to live with that. In physics, we know that you can't build a rocket that will travel faster than the speed of light. We know the law of gravity says you can't build an anti-gravity machine on Earth. We know that the first and second laws of thermodynamics mean you can't build a perpetual motion machine. We understand that. That restricts what we can aim for. And we live with that because that's physics. In chemistry, it's the same. The atomic property of atoms, the uh, diffusion constants and reaction rates all inform us of the kinds of atoms that we can react to give us bigger molecules. We live within the constraints of the laws of chemistry. And in biology, it's the same. We know that we are biological creatures, and as biological creatures, we have to live within the carrying capacity of wherever we live. Now, most animals, that's the ecosystem they inhabit. We have escaped specific ecosystems. We live within the biosphere. And the biosphere, nevertheless, imposes limits on the carrying capacity of our species. As biological beings, we have an absolute need for clean air, clean water, clean soil that gives us our food, and clean energy from the sun. Without those things, we either sicken or we die. So surely air, water, soil, biodiversity, and, and sunlight that's captured by plants, surely to, that for us must be the highest priority to protect because it's the very source of our survival and well-being. Viewed that way, how could we possibly regard those things as simply a resource to dump our toxic materials into? And you know the opposition one gets when you say, wait a minute now, the atmosphere is kind of important, gives us weather and climate. Um, maybe we should put a price on that junk that we're putting into the atmosphere. And you know what the response is to that. We want it all for free. And yet air is something that we have to understand. If we don't have air for more than three or four minutes, we're dead. If we have to breathe polluted air, we're sick. So surely to goodness, no one can disagree with the fact that air has got to be our highest priority. And if we're going to exploit it, we sure as hell ought to put a heavy price on whatever we're putting into it to discourage us from doing so in a profligate way. So those are laws that come from nature and we live within them. Other things, however, we take very seriously, but they don't emerge from nature. Borders. We draw borders around our property, around our cities, around our states, around our countries. And boy, do we take those seriously. I mean, we go to war and we will kill and die to protect those borders. But you know something? Nature couldn't give two hoots about our borders. Try to tell a fish or a bird or a migrating insect 
that our borders exist and see how much attention they pay to them or the atmosphere itself. And yet we take human boundaries as if they're very, very important. Other things, we invent concepts like capitalism, like the economy, like corporations or markets. And believe me, we reify them, we create them or make them into real things. Just listen to the news reports on radio any time of the day. Oh, market's not looking too healthy today. You think, what? Is the market, you know, sitting in bed with a thermometer in their mouth? You know, Mitt Romney said during his campaign, if Obama is reelected, the market will not be very happy. Well, we have created an entity out of the, we invented the damn things. It's the funniest thing, you know, for hundreds of years or hundreds of years ago, we actually believed in dragons and demons and monsters. I mean, we really believed them. And if we thought they were pissed off at us, man, you'd shovel money and gold and jewels, anything to placate them. Well, today, nobody believes in dragons, demons, or monsters. We know that those are creations of the human mind. But what do we do? We replace them with another, another human creation. You remember 2008 when the market collapsed because of the banks? What did Mr. Obama do? Hundreds of billions of dollars. Toss it back in, hoping that they'll come back. Wait a minute. Wait, 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 wait. We invented the goddamn thing. If it's not working, you don't keep trying to please it. You change it. That's the one thing you can do. But we, we uh, uh, look, at, look at what happens then when you have international conferences. Look at Copenhagen. 192 nations gathered in Copenhagen to now define the next stage after the expiration of the Kyoto Protocol. 192 countries dealing with the atmosphere that belongs to no one through the perceptual lenses of 192 national borders and 192 economic agendas. And what we tried to do then was to shoehorn nature into our creations. It will never work. And these, all of these conferences are absolutely doomed unless we change the way that we look at the problem and the way that we see the challenge. So I've said over and over again, I'm sick and tired of fighting I have been fighting ever since the environmental movement caught me and swept us up with the forest industry, with the fossil fuel industry, with the chemicals industry. But every time you fight, there's a winner and a loser or you end up compromising. And I don't think we can compromise any longer and we can't afford to have losers. So I always, when I'm asked, would you come and talk to us? This is Vice President Shell asked if I would come and talk. I said, sure. Uh, Marcel Coutu, the uh, CEO of a consortium of tar sands uh, companies in, in Alberta, asked if I would meet with them. I said, sure, let's, let's get together. But my only condition is we are not coming together with our vested interests that we are stakeholders and we're going to somehow fight to protect our turf. We're going to leave all that stuff outside the door. And we're first going to talk about what do we agree are our priorities. What do we agree on? And there I would say, and I must admit, the Vice President Shell and Marcel Coutu never called me back. <laughs> but what I said was, I want to throw out the suggestion that air, water, soil, and food 
Photosynthesis and biodiversity are our highest priority. That those are the foundations on which we live and flourish. And so we want to build a society in which we absolutely protect those things. Indeed, I call them sacred. And when something is sacred, you don't fool around with that. Those are our sacred things. And then I say, but we're not, we're more than just biological creatures. We're social animals. And what are the social values that we want to fight to protect? And here, to my astonishment, as I began to read uh, articles, it turns out that our most fundamental social need to be fully human and realize our full potential is love. That is, I mean, this is not some hippy-dippy trip I'm on now. This is that there are windows during early childhood when you have to be loved and held and to know in the comfort of your parents and your family that you are a part of that family and loved and protected. Those windows are critical because if they're not filled at that time, as you see with the orphans in Romania under the Ceausescu regime, or children who grow up under conditions of genocide, war, or terror, that these are children that grow up fundamentally crippled psychically and physically. They die faster than children who grow up fully loved. So surely then protecting children and for us to provide them with maximum love. And what does that mean? Well, it means you have to have a society with full employment where you have social justice and gender equity and freedom from fear and of, of genocide, terror, and war. Those are, are the kind of social conditions that we absolutely need to realize our full potential. And then we are spiritual beings, and we need spirit desperately in this time. We need to know that we're a part of nature, and when we die, we return to nature that is our birthplace. We need to know there are forces impinging on us that we will never understand or control or manage. That there are sacred places where we go with respect and veneration, not just looking for opportunities or resources. I believe we have to come together and all agree that those are our most fundamental needs, the foundation of the way we live. And then we ask, how do we make a living? What kind of a community can we build? How do we create a society in which those are our deepest values? That, I believe, is a challenge that we're all involved in at different levels, whether it's at what we as individuals can do or what our community or our cities or states or countries can do. We're all involved in that reassessment of who we are and what our most highest values are. Thank you very much. Ladies and gentlemen, that was the one and only Dr. David Suzuki. I hope you've enjoyed this City Talk brought to you by the City of Sydney. If you want to hear more from other experts passionately committed to enhancing life in our cities, download City Talks from wherever you get your podcast fix. And if you're listening to us in Sydney, keep your eye out for more live City Talk events on the City of Sydney website. I'm Adam Spencer. Bye-bye. 